want to introduce myself to those of you that don't know who I am. My name is Wayne Park. I am the lead pastor here at Woven Covenant Church, and it's my privilege to serve week in and week out, uh, not just leading the congregation, but weekly encouraging and speaking a word that is not just hopefully teaching or preaching, but also informative and an encouragement. In the last two or three months, we've been talking about faith and work, in particular a series called Sanctify Monday to Friday. And what we're talking about in this series is our spirituality, but all of our life, Monday to Friday as well, and how our faith can't just be something we do on Sundays, but it's something that we must also understand and must inform all of our life Monday to Friday. The problem is faith and, spirit, faith and work are often like oil and water. You try to force them to mix, but they don't blend, no matter how hard you try, because they're too different. And so it's counterintuitive to us, for us to talk about uh, work and faith as one thing. It's counterintuitive for us to talk about how my spiritual life informs all of my life. My hope is to teach and to uh, guide and to help form a perspective for this congregation that sees that all of life is spiritual if we recognize that. And to that end, it's important for us to talk about a Christian worldview. And today, I'd like to talk about something called a Christian cosmology. A cosmology is the same thing as a worldview. It's just a big word, but they basically it goes deeper and talks about how we believe that creation, how we believe that things are ordered. It's what we believe about the beginning, but it's also what we believe about the end. And I've spent a lot of time in the last few weeks building up a case, building up, uh, building up a worldview for this congregation that... God did not mess up when He created everything. That our lives, our bodies, in fact, were not meant to be discarded. Creation was not meant to be just thrown away. Our citizenship, yes, it's in heaven, but at the same time, God did not create earth as just a holding place. So I want to actually address that. Our citizenship, as much as it's in heaven, in the end, it is also on earth. There's a reason why the Bible begins with the affirmation of creation. It also ends with an affirmation of creation. And we see that in Revelations chapter 21. Listen to these words from the end of the story. By the way, the Bible doesn't just end with the goodness of creation, begin and end with the goodness. It also begins with a wedding. And look at this, it ends with a wedding. What is the wedding in the end of the Bible? Yesterday as I stood in the front and I beheld the bride walking forward, it was an emotional moment for me. And I had to hold back a couple of tears because I realized that this is what Christ must feel like as He sees His church restored. And what is the church that's restored but the new city, Jerusalem? This is not a spiritual city. This is not a ghost city. This is a holy city coming down. We're reading in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. There's the wedding imagery. Christ standing finally at the end. I get to be united with my bride, the church. And as he beholds his bride, the church, the new city, I heard a loud voice from the, th from the throne saying, Behold, 
Listen to this. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And I've spent a lot of time kind of trying to build a worldview that the point of the gospel is not to bring our souls away from earth up into heaven, but the point of the gospel is to bring heaven down to earth, to bring heaven down to earth. That's why Jesus became a man. The dwelling of God is among men, and they shall now be his people, and God himself will live among them. And what will he do when he lives among his restored, renewed creation, but wipe away every tear from our eyes? There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, no longer any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. If you look at my face, you know, standing as a public person, I have to be concerned about my image. You know, I can't be a slovenly, I can't come up with a slovenly appearance. And if you ever look at my smile, you'll see that it's a little bit lopsided. You might even see it right now. I don't have a perfect smile. If symmetry of the face is the measure of beauty, then I'm not very beautiful, not, not very symmetric. I have a lopsided smile due to a, an accident that I suffered a few years back where I had some reconstructive surgery on my face. As a result, I don't have the perfect smile, and surely on this earth there are many people that don't have perfect bodies. The great promise of Scripture is not that in the end we'll be free from our bodies. The great promise is that we all get to walk again. We all get to see again. This smile will be made crook, will be, this crooked smile will be made straight again. We will be fully reconstituted and made whole. I know that brings questions up, and we'll get to that. But what we're talking about here is something that I'd like to address as the ascension, the ascension of Christ, the ascension, not just the resurrection of Jesus, but also Jesus' ascension into heaven. This is what we believe when we say the Apostles' Creed every last Sunday of the month. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let's read the record of the ascension as we talk about the body, as we talk about all of these things. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9, this is the record of the ascension. It says, after he said these things, Jesus was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And so this records how Jesus, at the last day that he, his feet were on earth, he ascended into heaven. The question is, how did Jesus ascend into heaven? When you look just a few stories back in John chapter 20, we see Jesus having a conversation with Thomas in John 20, 27. And Jesus says, Thomas, it's me. Well, you what? You're a ghost. I'm not a ghost. Well, that's not what it says. But then he says, reach and put your finger into my side. Why would he have him put his finger into his side if not to show him, I am here among you, flesh and blood? Thomas's finger did not go all the way through Jesus as if he were a ghost. Thomas's finger touched flesh. In other words, when Jesus ascended, what ascended was a human person. This is what we believe about Jesus. 100% God, 100% man. And in that sense, it's a profound thought that what we have in heaven is a human being. This is not my theory, friends. This is not my 
theology. This is something that the Reformed Protestant Church has affirmed in their creeds. This goes even beyond that to the, uh, to the ancient church, to the first Christians wrestling with what does this mean? Who is this man, Jesus? In fact, one of the early Christians around 300, the year 300, his name was Augustine. St. Augustine said something very important but also kind of disturbing. Listen to the words of St. Augustine. Jesus' birth, his nativity, and we're here, we're approaching the, the Christmas season, the Advent season. Augustine says, Jesus' nativity came to nothing. It came to nothing. Listen to that. The birth of Jesus, it didn't mean anything. His passion, his sufferings, it doesn't mean anything. It bore no fruit. Augustine will continue and he'll say, even Jesus' resurrection was useless if, if the Savior never ascended into heaven. It's such a bold statement. What Augustine is saying is if, if Jesus never ascended into heaven, all of the work that he did up to that moment came to nothing. It came to nothing if Jesus never ascended into heaven. What in the world is he talking about? I think I know what he's talking about. Allow me to explain. I'll explain it now. Imagine if there was a secret agent, kind of like James Bond, and he was sent by HQ to rescue some captives. And so he was on a helicopter, and as the ship came, the helicopter came over the site, he descended he descended down, and he came down a rope, and he came into the area where the captives were, and he karate chopped a couple of the, a couple of the guards in the back of the neck. They jumped on him. He fought them. He overpowered them. He defeated them, and then he ran straight up to the bars where the captives were held, and he rattled the cages, and he said, hey, wake up, wake up, and everybody said, rescue is here, and when they came to the bars, he said, God bless you, good tidings, peace, hope, good news, bye. And then he left and he ascended back into heaven. The task was incomplete. The job never finished. What was the necessary missing component but the third and the last piece, which was rescuing and bringing the captives back up with him. This is why when Jesus ascended into heaven, it was necessary for him to ascend as a human being, the first person, the first human body, as it were, ascended into heaven. And so what I'd like to talk about this morning are three missions of ascension. If you look in your bulletin, you'll find three headings, three fill-in-the-blanks. Three missions of ascension for this Sunday morning. The first mission of ascension is overcoming the enemy. So consider, consider the, consider the secret agent who enters into enemy tor territory. What's the first thing that he must do before he rescues the captives? The first thing he must do before he rescues the captives is bind up the strong man, is overcome the enemy. In one of my travels, I remember uh, I was in central, actually this one was in Mongolia, and I was traveling north and through the countryside of Mongolia towards Russia, and I was on a train. And I remember as I was sitting on this train, I saw something in about half a second, split second, looking out the window, and it was a very strange, bizarre sight. 
What I saw were two men, shirtless, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. I don't know if this is a Mongolian thing. Wrestling, fighting. I mean, these two guys were kicking up dust and going at each other, hitting each other. And in that split second, I saw them, and it was almost like Jesus versus Satan in the wilderness. It was almost like a, a, a primal, primeval vision that I saw. And it reminded me of the story in Mark, where it talks about how Jesus, immediately it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit impelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, for 40 days, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And there's an image here, I think, kind of like when I was in Mongolia, of Satan and God fighting for no reason in the wilderness. For no reason, kicking up dust, wrestling. That's the question. Why did Jesus wrestle with Satan in the beginning of the Gospels, wrestling in the wilderness? For what reason? Why do that? Well, the answer is just two chapters later in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus says, don't you need to tie up the strong man before you rescue the captives? Before you want to plunder the strong man's house, first you must tie up, bind up, overcome the strong man. In other words, the first step of ascension, the first step of resurrection means defeating Satan. It was necessary for Jesus to tie up Satan in the wilderness so that while, while Satan is in the back room tied up like this, Jesus can take the captives and set them free. Does this make sense? Right? It was necessary to bind up the strong man. Friends, whenever you as a Christian, in your workplace, in your life, in your, in your behavior, in your ethical choices, whenever you do something that is for the good, you are in a sense together with Jesus binding the strong man so that you can once again rescue the captives. Friends, the gospel is not just soul saving, it is also spiritual warfare. The gospel is not just soul-saving. It involves daily small wrestlings in the wilderness. When you're at work and you face an ethical choice, or when you're conducting your life and you're facing some kind of choice, what do I do? Do I do the next right thing, or do I do what I want to do? Do I do the next right thing, or do I do what I want to do? When you do the next right thing, in a sense, together with Jesus, you are binding up the strong man so that you can rescue the captives. In your workplace, how are you binding up the strong man today? The first step is binding the strong man, overcoming the enemy, so that, so that the gospel can be effectively preached. And in our lives, there is no effectiveness, friends. There is no effectiveness if we have not first bound up the strong man. If Satan has sway over our lives through habits, through behaviors, through unethical choices, we will experience an inability to be effective gospel-wise. If we have not bound up the strong man. Now, the hope that we have is that Jesus has bound the strong man. He has done the work. He has done the work for you. But there is a second step, a second step. The second step is complete 
resurrection. I'm sorry, complete rescue. Complete rescue. After the strong man is bound and tied up in the back corner like this, Jesus comes to the gates and he unlocks them to set the people free. A complete rescue. But what does this complete rescue talk about? Listen to the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Just after the ascension, Peter gives a sermon in Acts chapter 2 verse 31 where he says, David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. David predicted this, that Christ, that Jesus was neither abandoned to hell. In other words, when he died, he wasn't thrown into hell. But this is the important part. Nor did his flesh suffer decay. When Jesus resurrected, his flesh did not suffer decay. In a sense, the rescue that we're talking about is not just spiritual, friends. The rescue that we're talking about is not just our souls getting to heaven. Because when Peter talks about Jesus not suffering decay, his flesh, his body not suffering decay, in a sense, what we're almost talking about is scientific. What was the fall? Yes, it was sin. It was sin. Unequivocally, we affirm this. But think about it. Scientifically, what was the fall? If not the breakdown of our DNA, little by little, so that we fall apart, we wrinkle, we thicken, we get old, we age, and we die. In other words, all of creation that in the beginning was meant to live forever, now, little by little, in its DNA, in its essential matter, it breaks down. Everything is breaking down. Jesus was the first living creation to not break down. When he saw Thomas, he said, careful. He didn't say, it's a little ginger. I just had my stitches. Don't poke too deep. It'll bleed again. No. Poke as far as you want. I will not decay anymore. I live forever. My DNA, I'm, you know, it's, it's almost, this is really corny, I know, but it's almost like, it's almost like Wolverine in the X-Men movies. If you cut him, you see him, and it heals up. That's Jesus, essentially. His DNA does not decay. And what's amazing about this is in all of earth, everything you see out there, it's a beautiful Sunday morning, and Andrew and Crystal, you were blessed with a beautiful day yesterday. But everything is dying. Everything dies. I look in the mirror. I, you know, take a couple of selfies at weddings, and I look at myself, and I'm like, man, I'm old. You know, I have crow's feet. I have hair that is turning white, and I feel it. Oh, what a wonderful hope it is that Jesus does not die, that he was the first human that lives forever, that he, the firstborn of many, lives forever. Listen to the words of Paul what we're talking about, friends, this complete rescue is not just soul rescue. It is the rescue of humanity, of all of creation. Listen to Paul. Paul says hard things. I know sometimes I say hard things too. And believe me, guys, I don't enjoy preaching this message about the body and about this stuff. You know why? Because I get funny looks. People say, That's not, that doesn't sound like, I just want Jesus. Don't give me this stuff. 
I don't want to talk about this stuff. Why am I talking about it? Because when it comes to faith and work, this is actually the centerpiece. It's unavoidable to talk about creation. It's unavoidable to talk about this hard stuff. If we don't talk about this stuff, then our faith and work, really, we will never have a fully complete perspective on what it means to be spiritual at work. We will continue to see work as just something I have to endure Until I die, I can freely retire and never have to work again. Actually, no. Work is part of creation. Work is part of God's purposes. Work existed before the fall. And so it's necessary, although uncomfortable for me to teach this, it's necessary. Listen to the hard words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. I'll walk you through it. Listen, Romans 8 verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation... The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What in the world is Paul talking about? What he's talking about is a world all around us dying. And I'm not talking about carbon emissions. I'm just talking about the basic fact that everything dies. Everything dies. So creation is waiting and longing. Lost my place. Waiting and longing for the revealing of the sons of men. In other words, creation is waiting for the immortal ones. Verse 20, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Same idea here, decay, corruption. We will be set free from corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Yes, Spirit is important. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now listen to this. The, re- the resurrect. I'm sorry. What does it say? Of what? The redemption of our bodies. Creation waits for the redemption of our bodies. So first step, the spy comes down. He descends. The first thing he's got to do is overcome the strong man. Overcome Satan in our lives. He does the work for us. But every time we live a life where we fool around a little bit, we mess around on the internet a little bit, we mess up on these relationships a little bit, we hurt people, you're snipping those ties and you're letting him be free a little bit more, in your life at least. Overcoming the strong man. The second thing is this complete rescue. What is this complete rescue? But the deliverance of creation from bondage to what? Decay, death, disease. And then there's the third piece to Jesus' ascension. And the last one, the fill in the blank, is participation. Participation. And I'll explain what I mean by this. Listen, friends. Do you believe that Jesus was God? Yes. Do you believe that he was 100% God? Maybe 99%? No. People died over this, friends. He was 100% God. Do we believe he was man? He was 100% man. People died over this as well. 
Now listen to this. It's interesting. If we believe that he was 100% man, and in fact, that man, when he resurrected, and I've kind of gone to great lengths to show that he resurrected in bodily form, what does that mean when he ascended into heaven? And we Christians who believe in the triune, the Trinity, the triune God, one God existing in three persons, what does this mean but that if Jesus in bodily form ascended into heaven, that what we have in heaven is a God, one person of whom is a human being. This notion that the three-in-one God, God in three persons, and yet the Trinity, one God, in the Godhead there is a human being. This, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It shows us that our God, our God values His creation so much to allow His creation to participate in the divine with Him. Participation means that our God invites you and I to experience the divine life. We, I'm not saying that we're ever going to be God, but we will be like God. We will be like Him. Our sanctification and the final step, our glorification means we will be together with Him, participating in His glory. The Christian God is not looking to escape the zoo that does not hate everything. Instead, and the Wachowski brothers at that time, they, they knew what they were talking about. That God in His affirmation of creation was not escapism. It's not talking about an escapism, but God is affirming not to escape this world, but to allow this world to be resurrected together with Him. Friends, when we talk about the end of all things, this is the vision of the gospel. This is the vision of the Bible, of Revelation, that in the end, it's the resurrection of those, first, those who will follow Christ, those who have put their faith in Him. Now, what about the fire? The Bible talks about the fire. Actually, yes, there is a fire, there is destruction, but that is unfortunately reserved for those who will not believe. So, yes, there is there is an annihilation. There is destruction. But for those of us who believe, there is the hope of a new city and the resurrection. I conclude with this last passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 58. Apologies, once again, this is Paul talking about hard stuff. But I want to talk about this because some of you have had loved ones who have gone already to be with the Lord. Some of you have had loved ones who have died and have gone on, what does this mean? Does this mean that they, in their death, will not resurrect until Jesus comes back and resurrects all of His followers, all of His people? Listen to the words here in 1 Corinthians 15, teaching some hard stuff, but we'll kind of round off here. We'll land the plane here, which means there's about 20 more minutes to go. I'm sorry. Uh, Verse, verse 20 of, verse, of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
I'm going to skim down to verse 42. So also the resurrection of the dead, sown a perishable body, raised an imperishable body, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. Now I'm going to fast forward to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, what happens when we die? And I'm going to try to teach very briefly here. Do we all sleep? The New Testament authors frequently talk about sleep, soul sleep. Do we sleep and then... We resurrect together in our physical bodies, together with all of those at the second coming. But there is something called the intermediate state. That is, when we die, if, 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 if you were, God forbid, to die today, until the point of Jesus' return, this intermediate state, what happens during this time? Are you just sleeping and waiting for Christ? Some believe that when we die, I mean... You can never know until it happens, but, you know, some theologians say you, it, it must be like, you know, falling asleep and waking up, and it's like no time passed. We're together with Christ and all the resurrected. But here's what I want to say. If you lost somebody, if you lost a loved one, if you lost a loved one recently, rest assured 100% that person is together with Christ in heaven. That person in their spirits is enjoying the peace, the unity. I mean, I have one of my mentors is, an, is a 75-year-old black man, 75-year-old black man, Dr. Willie Peterson. He's my coach. He was the man who interviewed me for my ordination. And his favorite verse in the Westminster Catechism is, what else do we have? I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. What else do I have to look forward to in all of my life and when I die? But the first thing is seeing the face of my Lord. The thing that I have to look forward to in the afterlife is to be united with Christ. Your loved ones are united with Christ spiritually. Spiritually, they are one with Christ. Don't doubt it at all. Don't doubt it. But... At the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of our bodies, what we're affirming is the reunification of soul and body. That soul and body were not meant to be separated for long. My professor of theology in seminary, J.I. Packer, who some of you saw on the Reframe course videos, himself taught us that we are ensouled bodies. We are bodies with souls, or we are embodied souls. In other words, what he's saying is soul and body are intertwined, they're intertwixed, that they're meant to be together. Have you ever felt like this? I went to church. I did my quiet time this morning. I, I've been faithful. I haven't been sinning. I feel good. And yet, why am I so tired? Spiritually, I'm on a mountaintop, but I feel depressed. I feel nervous. I have like a little tick. Why? Because you haven't had lunch today. <laughs> because because you, you need a nap. Because your body is tired. If you think you're just a soul, newsflash, you are a soul and a body. You are ensouled bodies. You are embodied souls. They are 
one, they are intertwined. Or, on the other hand, you're like, uh, I'm taking care of my body. I'm lifting weights. I'm feeling good. I look like the guy on the cover of the magazine. I'm doing all kinds of bad things with my life. Body and soul, a dichotomy. It's not working out. And yet you're living in you're living an unethical life. Something feels off in your life. You're taking care of your body, but your soul is undernourished. The point that I'm making is the intent, I believe, we feel it even in this lifetime, the intent is for body and soul to reunite. When God created us in His image in Genesis, in the very beginning, we were created in His image, body and soul. And in the same way, I believe that in the end, while we don't doubt it, our loved ones are with Jesus. They are with Jesus completely in their spirit, and they're enjoying the, the fellowship. At the same time, there will be a day when you see your loved one again, and you're not going to put your finger in her or his side, go all the way through, but you'll get to hold your mother's hands again. You'll get to look at your father's face and see his eyes when you see the child or the friend or the, son, the loved one that you lost, you're not going to hug a spirit. When Jesus returns, our hope is that he will resurrect those of us that believe in him with our bodies and spirits united, that you will hug a person and you will kiss and you will weep real tears and you will see them again and say, I've missed you, I've missed you, I've missed you. This, friends... This, friends, is the Christian hope. It's why this is the centerpiece to work. Because work is for the redemption of all things. Work is a way for us to say, I'm putting a down payment, Lord. I'm putting a down payment for the new Jerusalem to come. I'm putting a down payment for that final wedding when I get to see you again, not with spiritual eyes, but spiritual and physical eyes. I will see my Lord and you will see me, your church, no more with a crooked smile. <laughs> I'm walking again and I will be with my loved ones, my father and my mother and the grandparents and my children and together hand in hand we will walk together and stand before you, Christ. Every nation, every tribe, I'm sorry, Sorry if I'm disturbing. I'm sorry if I'm moving you a little bit too much. But the Christian hope is reunion. It is resurrection. In conclusion, I know that this is hard teaching because it's the ascension is just not preached. It lives there in our in the Protestant creeds, it's there. It's just something we don't talk about. But can you see, I hope you do, how life-affirming, how transformative it is, how beautifying. See if you can go forth now abusing your body, eating chips, drinking too much coffee, blood pressure, it's going up, going down. See if you can go forth from here now, not taking care of yourself, because it is the temple of the Lord. Yes, it will be destroyed. Yes, whether you're cremated or you're dismembered, as early Christians were. But in the end, Christ can reconstitute 
you from the ashes of the earth. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can rebuild you. And he will. See your life, your health, and your work as a down payment to the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Friends, in conclusion, I just want to say this. You reflect on what speaks to you today. What I've just taught you is important for this work series, but it's not so important as to cause a crisis of conscience or as to cause you to stumble in your faith. I don't want that. It's important enough for this work series, but it's not so important for you to have a crisis of faith or to stumble in your belief. So here's what I'm going to say. If something helped you, take it and leave the rest behind. If I said a thousand words today and only one word was useful, take that one word and leave behind the 999. But if indeed it helped, if indeed it made sense, may this be the beginning of a journey of a new understanding of our lives, our work, and all of creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And a loud voice came from the throne saying, Behold, he will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Revelations 21. Lord Jesus, we give our lives to you. We know that you have plans for us that far exceed anything that we can imagine. Faithfully, we gather here week in and week out worshiping you. Lord, we pray. Help us to see you in your fullness, to kiss your feet, to love you, and to lay our lives down. We trust you today. Help us to do the next right thing. And in the end, we know that you will overcome all things, Satan, sins, habits, hurts, hang-ups. And we eagerly await that day. Soon and very soon, Lord, we know you're coming.
Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.